Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The Mir Damad Orchard was in the city of Neshapur, or the new city of King Shapur, in the northeast region of Khorasan, known as the land where the sun rises. The orchard had been in Bibi Khanum's family for generations, built by her great-great-grandfather. He purchased four hectares of arid land from the local government and worked with engineers to build aqueducts that brought water onto the land from the Binilo Mountains in the north. The orchard was surrounded by one continuous adobe wall with massive wooden doors on the southwest corner. Upon entering, you followed a pebbled path that ran adjacent to the western wall. The path was lined on either side with trees and two narrow streams that led to the family living quarters. Most of the fruit trees were planted together in the southeast. There were various stone fruits such as plums, apricots, cherries, and sour cherries, and palm fruits such as apples and pears. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series, and today I'm talking to Rabia Gafari, author of To Keep the Sun Alive. Alternating between Paris in 2012 and northern Iran in the winter of 1979, this beautifully written novel is set in a society on the brink of collapse. It explores the complex family ties that can both nurture and destroy the human spirit. Hi, Rabia. Hi, Galit. Thank you for having me. So let's get started. About your we left Iran just before the revolution and became the Islamic Republic. What do you remember? Well, we left exactly three months before, and um, I remember life being really wonderful. And you know, but I was a child. So I think when you're little, you don't really see or recognize what's really going on politically. So leaving was something that I was not very happy about. And one of the things that's, um, I think, important to know is that um, we didn't plan to leave permanently. We had... um, my father was coming to America for an artist residency, and his friend told him he should take me and my mother with him because there was already a sense that something was happening. Um, so he did. And the whole time, up until the actual revolution, the intent was to return. Um, so the staying in America was, was um, unexpected. Um, and you know, but like, like any child, um, you know, you make, you know, the necessary changes that you need to sort of be in the society that you're in. So, um, I did, you know, I learned English fairly quickly and I sort of dove into my life in America. Um, the first year we were in Michigan and then we were in, um, Providence, Rhode Island for about a year and a half. 
And then in New York, I settled in New York in 1981, and I've been in New York since. Um, but the, the life I had in Iran for those first eight years are sort of in, they exist in this strange little bubble of like this other world. You know, it's almost like when you leave a place in the way that I left, that world becomes its own entity. It's not a part of the narrative of your life in the way that it is if you have sort of like a stable kind of um, existence in one place. Um, it was just a completely different, it was a cultural shift that was like night and day. It was a language shift. It was a, so, so in a way um, that life um, doesn't really seem real to me anymore. Do you still have family in Iran and are you able to connect with them? I do. Um, I, you know, I, I do. And um, I, I, the last time I was there was in 2002. And uh, oddly enough, it was the first time I had returned since I left as a child. And that was you know, a, a, an interesting experience. It's actually, it was actually the catalyst for the novel. Ah, so the next question was going to be, when did you start working on the book? And what was your motivation? Um, I, you know, I, I went back in 2002 to work on a documentary um, called The Troop, which was about a group of Tazia actors. Tazia is a traditional Iranian theater. And my father was directing Tazia at the Lincoln Center Summer Festival. So I decided to make a film about this whole process and thought I should go back to Iran and film Tazia in its own environment before I come to New York and film rehearsals and performance and so on. And when I went back, um, you know, one of the, the first things that struck me was that I felt completely alienated. I, I didn't recognize anything. You know, it had been so many years. There have been, there had been so many changes and I started to, you know, see family and, you know, meet family in some instances for the first time. Um, and one of my cousins who I had grown up with, um, she's from my father's side of the family who's from Neshapur. And, you know, the orchard that's actually in the novel is, you know, the, uh, the orchard that was my paternal grandmother's orchard. And my cousin and I used to play in that orchard. And she said to me, but, you know, after the revolution, after we left, not too long after my grandmother died and the orchard was sold, of, it was sold off piece by piece. So she said to me, do you want to go see what's left? And I said, I'll go if you go. <laughs> so we, um, you know, we got in the car, we drove there and, you know, all that was left was just a piece of the wall, the adobe wall. And we just sort of stood in front of it and I sort of reached out my hand to touch it and it fell into dust. And, you know, and I didn't think anything beyond that. And I sort of went about, saw more family, did the work I needed to do. And I came back to New York and that image, it's just stayed in my head and I couldn't shake it. And at the time, you know, I had been working in film. I had, you know, I, I never thought of myself as a writer. And so, you know, it seemed natural to me to write the story 
a story about this particular place that was no longer there as a screenplay, which is which I which is what I did. Um, so this book was originally a screenplay, and then I took it and. Um, after a few years, I started to turn it into a novel, and um, and that's that's how that's how it happened. Huh. How did you decide to alternate the story between Paris and Iran? Um, the Paris part came later, and the reason that I added it was to um, to one compress the story, and two um, give it a certain um, you know reason for being. Um, I, I wanted it to, it's like, why now? Why am I telling this story now? Um, so it's really, I, I wanted it to have a certain sense of, you know, like, why are you telling this story at this particular moment? And using the eclipse to connect the two, both the the Paris 2012 and Iran 1978 um, was it seemed to me like the perfect way to connect those two stories. So another um, huge aspect of your book that I loved is the food. Describe it so lovingly. Do you have a personal connection to food? (laughs) I do. Um, You know, Persian cuisine is um, really something, um, it's it's really I mean I'm I'm from Iran so I'm biased but it really is I think one of the finest cuisines in the world. It's certainly one of the oldest. Um I think it's as old as Indian cuisine. Um and it's a, it's it's just a wonderful cuisine because it has all of the sort of like vast array of flavors um that kind of like balance out one another and also you know the topography of iran is really diverse so you have a mountain region desert you know water um you have forests it's so you have a sort of um depending on where you are it shifts so you know the the cuisine that i describe um in the novel is really um it's sort of like the main cuisine of Iran. But if you travel through Iran, there's there's a vast, vast cuisine that's very diverse. Well, I'm hungry and I'm ready to come to New York and have a Iran Persian feast. So um, when you introduce us to the family, we meet the retired judge in his wife. What can you tell us about these two um, These two characters... Um, represent in a way uh, a sort of a stability, a tradition that um, existed and still exists in Iran. Um, You know, there's, because there's a lot of, I think, um, in our culture here in America, there's this sort of tendency to equate religion with politics um, in terms of, you know, in, in regards to Iran and other parts of the Middle East as well. But um, Bibi Khanum especially kind of represents that traditional um, Iranian woman who was religious, but that her faith was um, 
deeply personal and it was sort of, it manifested itself in acts of kindness. It was, so I, it was really important to me to have characters in the novel who represented aspects of the culture that on the face would strike people as um, fundamentalist in a certain way, or, you know, because I think we have a way of like sometimes um, thinking that like, you know, being a Muslim, being a practicing Muslim, it means that you are automatically um, a fundamentalist. Um, And that's just nothing could be further from the truth. Um, So, you know, and Bibi Khanum is based on many both of my grandmothers in a way, you know, these are, and and their generation, they were women that were in many ways traditional. They were often religious. Um, They didn't touch alcohol and, you know, things like that. And, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were fundamentalist or that they were political in their religious faith. And Akbar, um, you know, he, he sort of, for me was this person who, came from, he was also, you know, sort of a traditional older generation, but he sort of represented um, inaction, you know, the, the person who sort of is like, he just sort of sits back and he recognizes um, the, the complexity of, of life and a society. And, but he's not active. Well, he's a retired judge, so he, had been active at one point. Well, he kind of looked at, you know, he was a judge under the monarchy and he saw the hypocrisy of it. He saw that there, you know, if you you live in a society that has a monarch, you, it's, you know, it's really not possible to have any kind of like democratic reality. Um, right. He's disappointed. He's, he's sitting under the tree. He was very disillusioned by... Um, what he saw. Um, And I think that it was important to have um, sort of those two characters because everybody else, you know, they're, they're all, you know, I always like kind of describe the setting of the novel and the family in the novel as, you know, this orchard and this family represent a nation and its peoples because just like a family you know, you don't choose where you're born and you also don't choose what family you're born into. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this, you know, for, for me, they were sort of a microcosm of a nation. And I was trying to look at it from as multiple points of view as I could. Um, because really, when you have a revolution, when you have political, internal political turmoil, it's really important to sort of look at, you know, all the different perspectives, especially if you're, you know, as a novelist, as a storyteller, um, it's really important to be able to look at something, not just from, you know, a human level, from a deeply human level, but also from sort of like, you know, this sort of aerial view of, okay, this society and all of these people in it coming up against one another. Next, we meet Judge's open brother, who's a Muslim cleric, and we meet him as he's proudly giving his Friday sermon. He, can you talk about him and why he's so resentful of his brother Akbar? Um, I think, you know, his resentment towards his brother has to do with their own family experience growing up. 
Um, and one of the reasons I kind of go into, um, you know, their life story later on in the novel and their childhood and their sort of family history is because um, I, I do think, um, I mean, I don't think you can psychologize away everyone, you know, but I do think you can, to a certain extent, if you look at a person's history, you can understand why they are the way they are. And, you know, so I think a lot of times people take their personal resentments and their personal injuries, and they sort of like push them out into the world. And they make them political. You know, they make them political injuries, they make them political um, traumas that, you know, but, you know, if you look closely, you see it's deeply personal. We see that in every society, including the current one. Um, the next person of interest is the nephew, Shaz Dapur, who's the nephew of the retired judge and the Muslim cleric. And he's important because he's the father of Majid and Yamshid. And Yamshid is an opium, opium addict. Let's talk about those three. Um, Shaz Dapur was always... Uh an important character in my mind because Shastapur sort of represents the Iranian dandy. The, you know, they all call him Fokoli behind his back and, and Fokoli in Persian is sort of a derogatory term. It comes from the French Fokol, which is like the, you know, the fake tie. Um, and it really means like a, someone. And I think like people from, any country that has been colonized, even though Iran was never technically colonized, um, in many ways it was, um, you know, they can understand like that person who in a way is almost um, embarrassed by their culture, by the religion and all of these things of their own culture. And they sort of like idealize Europe. They ideal, they're Europhiles. And, you know, and you have that, you know, I, I, you know, that exists, existed, and still to a certain extent, I'm sure there are people that are still like that. Um, so Shazdapur was always in a way a little bit out of place. Um, you know, even the way that he eats, you know, he's almost embarrassed at the way Persian food is served. So he tries to like separate the food. So it looks more like, you know, a French plate. Um, you know, so that was the, the, that was, that's what he represented, the sort of discomfort with where he was and this constant desire to be where he wasn't. And also, um, in his animosity towards, um, uh, Shiite Islam towards the faith. Um, that's, that was also an issue for, you know, you'll, you'll find Iranians sometimes that, will be like, you know, please call me Persian. And, you know, and they want to sort of forget. They don't want, you know, this 800 years of their history to be sort of present for them. But, you know, it, it should be noted, though, that Iran is a, a diverse country. Um, there are Jews, Armenians, um, Baluchi, Kurds, you know, so in, in you know, Believe it or not, there's actually a really diverse society there. Um, so his sons, uh, Majid and Jamshid, um, they're sort of, for me, that it was always, you know, Majid was always in a way the protagonist for me. 
So Majid um, always represented for me, like he was always the protagonist for me. Um, he was the character through whom I sort of saw, you know, here's this young 18-year-old man who wants change. He wants his his country to change. He wants it to progress. Um, you know, and, and in a way, I think in any society that you look at that's on the sort of brink of a real political change, you'll find this generational fight. And it is often generational. You have the younger generation that wants the world to be different. You have the older generation telling them, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, things were fine as they were. Don't be childish. So you have this kind of like push on both sides. So Majid, in a way, kind of represented that. He wasn't, um, you know, he hadn't figured it out completely for himself, like how it should look. Um, but he knew that that's what he wanted. He wa- he wanted that change. Uh, Jamshid um, was, uh, you know, Jamshid was a cynic. He was somebody that, you know, he was like, you know, you know you're a fool. You know, uh, he's like, I know how this story ends. It's the same story, you know, th- th- don't be a fool. Um but oddly enough, he's the one that's the opium addict. And even, I mean, in the book, you know, when they have their little political debate, um, you know, when Majid, you know, when Jamshid says to Majid, you know, you can't be, you know, if you don't see the world the way that it is, you can't be in it. Um, and Majid says, is opium a way in the world? And Jamshid said, no, it's a way out of it. Um, so he just, he doesn't want to be a part of it. He doesn't want to participate. I want to point out that it's a big cast of characters, but they're gathered together at the orchard for these magnificent um, Sabbath meals on Friday. So that's how they all come into contact with each other. One of my favorites, uh, might be my favorite character, is the gossipy, bossy wife uh, Mohammed, niece of Bibi Hanum, mother of the young girl with whom Majid is in love, and her name is Gamar. Loved her. Yeah, I mean, she was she was really a, a lot of fun to write. Um, you know, one of the things that was really important, I think, in in writing this book was that I wanted it to have comic relief. Um, I wanted it to have moments of levity and, you know, and I also wanted it to have characters that were, um, you know, really full. They were well-rounded. They, they felt real. And so there, you know, so I did focus on some domestic issues as well, you know, like, you know, in a way it's like, you know, you have, you know, Bibi Khanum and Akbar who have this wonderful marriage you know, they have this sort of tranquil, peaceful marriage and union. Then you have Muhammad and Gamar who have a marriage that's totally falling apart. Um, then you have Nasreen and Majid who have this sort of like hopeful look towards a union. So I wanted it to have this sort of generational um, diversity, but also a diversity in relationships and how people related to one another. Um, because I think that that is something universal. 
I think that it, you go into any family in any society, you're going to see uh, a really diverse cast of relationships. So that was one of the things that I think was really important in terms of writing the book. Because, I mean, look, I, I wrote this in English, so it's going to be read by the English-speaking world. Um, so, and if it's translated into other languages, it would, again, it would be places that might have no idea about Iran and its culture and its history and its politics. But they, I think, in a novel, you know, you can right away recognize these sort of uh, traits of human beings, especially in families and in relationships and how they relate to one another. So that was really, really important because this isn't a polemic. Um, it's a story. And in fact, you know, when I first met my editor, Lee Newman, um, the first thing she said to me, which I thought was so wonderful, is that, you know, I had originally, I had footnotes for some of the words that are in Persian that have no translation in English. And she goes, we're getting rid of all of that. Um, she's like, we're not going to pull people out of the story. And I absolutely agreed. You know, she was absolutely right. Like, you don't want to pull people out of the story. You're not talking at them. Um, you want to pull them in and have them sort of experience it with you. Yeah, I, I agree too. Because I don't know Farsi, I would just skip over those lines. So um, there's the pudgy adopted son of the judge and his wife. And uh, I love uh, during this massive, fascinating meal, he's just wide-eyed trying to get as many sweets as possible to his mouth. But the story about his birth mother, his birth and his birth mother, the prostitute, is very interesting and woven through the story, through the book. Um, well, you know, it's, it, it, I, I kind of, it was, uh, I think it was important to me to sort of show um, uh, an array of uh, different women um, in the society. Um, from different, you know, not just generational differences, but um, class differences. And, you know, even like to go from a prostitute to a matriarch, um, you know, it just show that vast array and how, you know, a society deals with, you know, handles with, especially a traditional society, handles or deals with these different types of women. And, and even how they are to one another, you know, how Bibi Khanum treats the prostitute is very different than Qamar, is very different than Nasrin. It's, it's, so you have these sort of like female friendships and relationships that I think were really important. I mean, I, I do, when it comes to the sort of domestic relationships between the characters, I was very interested, not just in how women are with one another, but how women and men relate to one another, that kind of like equilibrium that sometimes goes out of, you know, it falls apart. It has all of these, it's, it's so complex. And I think it's complex in any society. I think every society struggles with trying to figure out what is the right way for us to be with one another, like in, in spaces with one another. Um, so that was, you know, and it's also the fact that um, Bibi Khanum is a woman that can't have children. Um, so she adopts this child. 
um, that was, and also, you know, I think one of the characters that was um, really important in Bibi Khanum's life was uh, the midwife, her best friend, mm -hmm. who brings that child into her life. And even, you know, the midwife and her relationship with the prostitute is very specific. And neither know the birth mother, the prostitute doesn't know that he's her son, and Bibi Khanum doesn't know that he's the child of the prostitute. No. No, which is very, you know, in Iran, that's a very, you know, we're a very, we're not a kind of society um, that is very expulsive about these things. You know, it's funny, the filmmaker, Askar Farhad, um, <clears throat> who made several extraordinary films, um, his latest was, um, it took place in Spain, and it's with uh, Javier Bardem, and Penelope Cruz, and he was talking about how originally he titled the film Nobody Knows, and then he, after having lived in Spain for some time and working on this film, you know, the, both of the actors were like, you know, this is Spain, everybody knows. So it's, you know, and it, so it's that, it's that kind of thing where like the same story told it depending on where you are, you know, some people keep all those things really close to the best. Oh, so Ravi, I've already taken up so much of your time, but I could go on. There's so many more questions I have about this book. And I don't know if you've read this, I consider these podcast interviews as my own personal group where I get to talk to the author and ask questions. So much fun. So uh, I've enjoyed this so much. Could we um, end with you telling us what you're working on now? Oh, absolutely. I'm actually working on um, what I think will be a trilogy, and the it takes place in New York. So I'm moving, I'm moving my world to to New York City, which is where I've lived since I was ten years old. So for many, many years, and um, uh, I think you know, there's, some of the characters are Iranian, of course, and one of them is um, going to be Nasreen. So I'm bringing her to New York City. So, um, yes, there's that's that's what I'm working on now. I'm sure she'll love the New York City. This has been so much fun. Thank you for joining me today, Robbie. Thank you. And thank you for joining me today. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network. Today, I've been speaking to Rabia Ghaffari about her new book, To Keep the Sun Alive. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.